0: This is a Triple J podcast. (laughs) Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Could AI technology see Australians wrongfully jailed, arrested relying on flawed facial recognition technology? It's a big debate in the US, but what's the situation here? Do we know how AI is being used by law enforcement and what legal protections there are to protect the public? That's coming up very soon. We've got a former Human Rights Commissioner on to talk about it, so stay listening for that chat. It's fascinating. Also coming up, a big court ruling that means tenants in rundown housing could be eligible for compensation. First, though, let's check in with the fire situation.
1: Hack. This is the time when you work out what communities are made of.
0: On Triple J. Communities across the country are exhausted. Days, weeks of fires burning, especially in Queensland and New South Wales. If you're not in these areas, maybe you don't even realise how devastating these fires have been. For example, more homes have been lost in Queensland in these fires than were lost in the state during black summer, which might surprise a lot of people. It surprised me when I heard that this morning. It's so upsetting and obviously really worrying with the hottest, driest, most risky parts of the year still ahead of us. Let's check in with what the fire situation is at the moment. Hack reporter Ellie Grounds is with us now. Hey, Ellie, what is the situation right now?
2: Yeah, Dave, well, as you said, it's been a huge few days for firefighters in both Queensland and New South Wales. We've had really hot temperatures and really strong winds uh, whip up dozens of fires in both of those states. Uh, as an example, yesterday in Queensland we saw more than 1,000 firefighters battling 80 blazes wow. alone. So it's been it's been pretty full on. And as is always the case with bushfires, conditions can change really quickly. I've been monitoring it today, and things have gone from emergency to watch and act back to emergency. Um, but there are still a few key blazes that authorities are particularly worried about. So in Queensland we've got some fires, and they're actually at opposite ends of the state. There's a couple in far north Queensland, southwest of Cairns, that we're really keeping an eye on Um, and then also a couple down on the Southern Downs region south of Warwick just near the New South Wales border and then over the border in New South Wales uh, the key area of concern is still around the town of Tenterfield. Um, There's fires still all around there and that town was very badly threatened last night and the fires there are still out of control so um, crews are still working really hard to contain them.
0: Yeah it does move really quickly and just a reminder if you are in one of these areas where there are fires stay tuned in to your ABC local radio also fire authorities in your state make sure you're following them on socials you can get info and the latest updates from them Ellie what kind of damage have we seen so far in these communities
2: yeah, so as you mentioned before, we've passed this really grim milestone now and we're still a whole month out from summer. Um, so, so far, just in a tiny pocket of Queensland, we've seen more homes destroyed just there than we saw in the entire state during Black Summer in 2019, 2020. Wow. So we've had at least 53 homes destroyed near the town of Tara and at least four near Wollongarra. So that takes us to 57. And in Black Summer, we actually only had 49. So we're already way ahead of that. Um, and so we've now had ABC reporters working really hard in those areas talking to local residents who have either lost homes or nearly lost homes and were, and were very, very worried. Um, and so one resident in Wollongarra, Michelle Baylent, uh told the ABC the fire there was just moving so, so quickly and she was absolutely terrified.
3: I'm standing there watching this big, whirly wind of flames just lift up off the ground coming across. But yeah, it was the most scariest thing we've ever experienced.
2: Yeah, this is a pretty horrifying experience. And so, and so, yeah, um, as I said, the other place on the other side of the border that um, we've really seen um, a lot of blazes, it is around Tenterfield. And so at one point yesterday, that entire town was actually surrounded by fire. It was cut off. All the roads um, were cut off because they had a number of fires that joined together and actually start to jump roads and rivers. And so we have had reports of homes being damaged in that Tenterfield area right now. We don't have a figure. The crews are still getting in today and assessing the damage and figuring out what the numbers are. Um, um, but this is what the New South Wales RFS Commissioner Rob Rogers had to say about that a bit earlier today. I think it's today.
3: remarkable that whilst we haven't gone through and done a catalogue damage yet, um, but that there, we haven't had any reports of serious injury or loss of life in that area. So, you know, it, it was pretty bad conditions.
0: Yeah, Ellie, where to from here? Like, what can we expect going forward?
2: Well, the good news is today that we have seen the conditions ease off a bit. Uh, temperatures have dropped quite a bit and those uh, winds have come down in some places. Um, and a number of fires in both the states have had their statuses downgraded, which is good, but obviously things can change um, very quickly. But for now, at least those better conditions mean that crews have a chance to try and get on top of the fires um, and keep them contained. And so hopefully um, we can see that those conditions last for, for long enough for them to be able to do that. Um, but QFEST today said, especially in Queensland, they're still not out of the woods, there could still be high winds over the next few days, and they're also predicting there might be some storm activity. So obviously rain is a good thing because it puts out fires, but if it comes with dry lightning yeah. it could then cause more fires um, to break out. So I guess now for residents in those areas, some of them are starting to return home, assess the damage, maybe see their house for the first time, if it's been burnt down or not. Um, we've still got people in evacuation centres. And the The other thing is firefighters are already on the 1st of November exhausted. um, So we can expect to see more reinforcements come in from other places. Um, In Queensland today, we've already had more than 80 firefighters from Victoria come to help. um, And we've heard that we should see firefighters from New Zealand coming in the next few days as well. Obviously, to rotate out, give them a break because this is a marathon. It's only the first of November, so they're going to be very busy over the next few months. Yeah,
0: a long, long summer ahead. So much exhaustion already. Ready, but hey, it's important that we stay up to date. We keep across it. Hack reporter Ellie Grounds, thank you very much for the update.
2: No worries, Dave.
0: And there's more information on Hack's Instagram on the fires. If you want some of those specific details, you can go there, check out uh, the post. We'll also keep you across all of the big developments here on Hack as they, as they come about.
3: Hack.
2: The problem isn't just the technology. It's our tendency to think it's infallible. On Triple J.
0: Facial recognition technology. How much do we know about it? How it works, its limitations, even biases. The growth of AI in all areas is something the world's still getting used to. So would it worry you to know that in the United States, people have been wrongfully arrested because of police relying on AI systems for investigations? This is the focus of a new AI podcast for the ABC's Science Friction. They've done a deep dive on the issue and they spoke to a man in the US who got locked up for a crime he didn't commit. Because detectives relied on AI systems which scanned millions of driver's licence picks and singled him out. Here's a bit of his story.
1: I knew it wasn't me by looking at it, but I don't know if they could tell at first glance. And then I wanted to ask them, do you think all black people look alike? Just because he was a big black guy, it don't, that don't make it me though.
2: Robert holds up a photo to his face, Ask them, does this look like me? The detective admits it doesn't.
3: He's like, so the computer got it wrong.
1: I'm like, yeah, the computer got it wrong. So it was a big
0: mistake. How reliable is this technology? How common are the errors? And is it being used in the same way here in Australia? Well, Ed Santo is a former Human Rights Commissioner. He's now co-director of the Human Technology Institute at UTS. And he's with us now. G'day, Ed. Thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. How widespread is facial recognition technology around the world and here in Australia?
3: It's growing super fast. So one uh, example of that is in London. There's now, by some measures, almost a million facial recognition enabled CCTV cameras. So wow. that's one for every 10 residents of London. Uh, so it's, it's, it's huge. We, we don't think much of about it when we use it on our smartphones, but when the police use it, That's a different matter entirely. Well, yeah, we're hearing these
0: stories about its limitations, its uses by law enforcement, particularly in the US. We just heard an awful incident where someone got arrested for a crime they didn't commit. Are we learning more about the limitations of
3: this technology in law enforcement, do you think? I hope so, because uh, we understand why police want to use facial recognition you know if they've got a photo of someone they think that person you know is guilty of committing offense they don't know who it is they desperately want to find that person so there's this sort of wonderful idea a bit of magic that the technology will help them catch the criminal the problem is that sometimes the technology is deeply flawed can you explain
0: how racial bias has crept into facial recognition technology
3: yeah, so facial recognition is just another type of artificial intelligence. And the thing you have to remember is that machines don't start off as intelligence. You you have to train them. And the way you train a facial recognition machine is you give it as many pictures of people as you possibly can. And what we found is those training data sets had a lot of photos of people that looked like me. So white middle-aged man, it, it, th- those facial recognition applications became really good at recognizing identifying people who look like me. But there weren't very many people who had dark skin, there were very few people who had a physical disability, not very many people who were women. And so, surprise, surprise, facial recognition applications are less accurate on the whole when it comes to identifying people with dark skin, women, people with physical disability and so on. So,
0: were there big moves to kind of try and counteract that in the way the technology is being developed? Is it a big focus?
3: Yeah, there's definitely uh, an effort being made to have more diverse um, training data sets. And that's probably a good thing. But what we've seen, especially in the United States, is people who are groups who represent African American communities saying, well, hold on, why would we? participate in this if you're just wanting to build a machine to lock up more african-american people why would we help you do that so it also raises some much deeper questions about our criminal justice system whether it unfairly targets in this case african-american people and whether we should be doing something a bit more you know fundamental about that rather than just getting more and more tech tools to lock people up This is
0: Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Professor Ed Santo, an expert on responsible AI, about facial recognition technology, its uses around the world. But also, I want to ask you, Ed, about its uses here in Australia. What is the
3: situation in Australia at the moment? We don't know nearly enough, but a few little bits and pieces of information have seeped out. Uh, so just uh, earlier in in October, during the Senate Estimates hearings, the federal police acknowledged that they were using a couple of forms of facial recognition. We also saw a couple of years ago our privacy regulator issue a determination against again the federal police on the basis that they were using a, a facial recognition system, one developed by Clearview AI, that was in breach of Australian privacy law. So we've seen this being used a bit and we've also seen even the police force operating on the wrong side of the law. So we know that police forces have been
0: trying to use this technology or there have been attempts at least... What about the laws surrounding this? Because that would be a massive concern for people like you, but all kinds of people uh, who are advocates for protecting people's privacy. Where are we up to with the safeguards that are in place in Australia
3: to protect citizens? Yeah, our privacy law was largely drafted before the rise of the internet. So the, the, the idea that it would have properly considered mass use of facial recognition is just crazy. We, we know that in reality, our law doesn't deal directly with the risks associated with facial recognition technology. And so we know that there's an urgent need to reform that, that law to make sure that people are properly protected. Have
0: there been moves within parliament, within government to, you know, tackle this issue in terms of legislation?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So when I was Human Rights Commissioner, um, we did a, a small piece of work that showed the need for reform. And then uh, since I came to UTS, uh, my colleagues and I have developed a model law for facial recognition technology. The Attorney General has said we need reform in this area. It's been very, very clear. But as yet, we haven't actually seen a bill go to parliament. Do you think
0: companies need to be held more accountable for any biases, discrimination as a direct result of their AI systems? Because even recently we saw in Australia, a person was unable, I think, to create an Airbnb account because they couldn't have their identity verified because of this reliance on facial recognition technology. It's obviously having really big consequences on people's lives, How do you think we need to
3: tackle that issue of the company's responsibilities? Our anti-discrimination law is actually very clear. It says that if you're using any technology or no technology, but you discriminate against someone on the basis of their race, their age, their gender or their disability, that that is unlawful. So if someone were going into a pub in any part of Australia and uh, the manager said, no, you can't come in because we don't serve people who have the same skin color as you, then we know that the law would be all over that manager, right? Like that that company would get into a lot of trouble. But when that's happening using technology, the law has been slow to catch up. It's not that it's unclear. The law is really clear. It's just that we need to have better enforcement of those existing anti-discrimination laws to make sure that people are protected when it is artificial intelligence that is discriminating against them.
0: There'd be people listening now going, oh, well, you know, this is just the way of the future. I think people get really scared, um, freaked out about what's to come unnecessarily. How do you respond to those calls by people, those ideas by people that really this is just something that's part of life now and we need to get used to it?
3: Yeah, I'd really push back against that. There are two things that people can do. One is you can inform yourself. You know, there, there are plenty of uses of AI that are really safe and that actually make your life better. And that those are good things, but there are also serious risks as well. And so it's like with so much of of modern life, you need to be really well-informed to stay on the right side. But the second thing that people can do is that they can get involved in, in our political system. We, we live in a democracy. Uh, I think it's really important for our representatives in Canberra to hear very clearly if people feel that their privacy is not properly protected. Because sometimes we're, we're offered this false choice. Either you can have you know, all of the great benefits of new technology, but you have to accept all of these infringements on, on our human rights. And I wouldn't accept that. I would definitely say that's a false choice. And we need people to be very, very clear in speaking publicly about that. We're seeing AI being used in all kinds of ways to make big decisions about people. Uh, we're seeing it especially used in recruitment. We know that old-fashioned recruitment processes can be a bit, you know, unfair. They can be biased, and that's definitely true. But we also sometimes see that when AI is introduced, the old problems are addressed, but new problems are created. And so we've seen new forms of bias, particularly in that area of recruitment. Uh, and, and, and that's really upsetting um, because we also have seen some amazing strides that AI um, can, can you know, help make our communities more inclusive. I've done a lot of work with people with disability over my career, but we should be very clear eyed about what the risks are. The recruitment stuff is
0: so interesting, and it's definitely an issue that we're going to be unpacking more on Hack. We appreciate your take on all of this, Professor Ed Santo from the Human Technology Institute. Thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. And on the text line, someone says, What about Australian shops? stores recording your face and not disclosing it. Yeah, that's a huge issue. We've talked to consumer rights advocates about that in the past. If you want to learn more about uh, facial recognition technology, the flaws, how it's being used overseas and here, go listen to the Science Friction podcast. It's available now, wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great listen. Hack. We're still going to keep on fighting for better housing in my community. On Triple J. What's the bare minimum you expect in your rental property? Security, plumbing, what about a back door? Because there was a big decision out of the High Court today that could have huge consequences for renters across the country. After a legal fight lasting years, a tenant from remote central Australia's won a case against her landlord, who just happened to be the NT government. She was a public housing tenant. And some of the issues with her home were really distressing. The woman didn't have a back door for years. There were snakes getting into the house, leaking sewerage. Unfortunately, the woman and another person fighting this case have since died. But the impacts are set to affect a lot of people. Let's find out more. Lee Robinson is an ABC reporter covering this. He's with us now from our Alice Springs studio. G'day, Lee. Thanks for coming on Hack. G'day, Dave. Good to be here. What was the decision in the High Court today?
1: Well, this High Court ruling unanimously recognised for the first time the rights of tenants to compensation for disappointment and distress when a rented house does not meet legal standards. So as you mentioned before, the league claimant's case concerned the NT Department of Housing's failure to provide a back door to her premises for over five years. There were issues like snakes coming into the house and then there were actually over 70 other households in the same community, uh, which is uh, Santa Teresa, about 85 kilometres southeast of Alice Springs, who had brought claims for a range of issues, things like leaking sewage, unstable electricity, no air conditioning, Conditioning. So this case is actually a culmination uh, of a more than eight-year fight. This community has been uh, pushing for change with the anti-government for a long time. It dates back to 2018 when they approached uh, the anti-government and, and gave a list of over 600 repairs that were requested uh, in the community. So what
0: kind of significance is this ruling? I mean, the High Court, it's obviously a very big decision, but what's it going to mean longer term for the NT and remote communities, do you think?
1: Well, there's been years of hearings and appeals, but you know, to make it to the High Court, that is the the highest court in, in the country, and it re- really is a landmark victory for these uh, remote uh, Indigenous tenants in the community, not just of Santa Teresa, but uh, across uh, the Northern Territory and even Australia, because... Uh, this ruling basically says that the government is liable for compensation to its tenants uh, in Santa Teresa for the distress that was caused by years of living in dilapidated housing that did not meet basic legal standards. So following today's ruling, all applicants from this remote community can hope for some compensation for the poor housing conditions that persisted for, for weeks, for months, or even for years at a time. So have you had a chance,
0: Lee, to speak with the community today, get their response? What have they had to say?
1: Well, I was speaking with uh, a Santa Teresa resident earlier today. Her name's Annie Young, and she's actually the niece of one of the two lead applicants, both of whom uh, have since passed away, as you mentioned. So they're not around to see their fight deliver uh, these outcomes today. But Annie said that today's outcome was very very important, not just because housing is a human right, but uh, because a lack of adequate housing has led to uh, many significant health issues for her community. So she also wanted to pay tribute to those two lead claimants who who are not around today to see this outcome. Uh, Here's a little bit of what she said to me earlier.
0: It should be really, really important for housing in remote communities because we have been struggling for better housing in communities for a very, very long time. And the government didn't even listen to us, what we what we needed in the first place until people like myself in my community have fought and fought for better housing in community. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people will be welcoming this decision in that community. Lee, I guess the attention is also turning to what this will mean more broadly and you touched on the impact it could have for renters across the country. Have you spoken to lawyers, other people, who've talked about what kind of significance this will have?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This decision is not just about renters in this particular remote community. It could actually have wide ranging ramifications across the country because it gives tenants a new way to hold landlords accountable for unsafe, unhealthy or uncomfortable housing. So this judgment will significantly increase the compensation available to the roughly 5,300 remote Indigenous households in the Territory and over, over 30 30,000 Indigenous tenants who live in these houses. But I also spoke to Dan Kelly, who's a a lawyer at uh, Australian Lawyers for Remote Aboriginal Rights. He's been involved with this case for some time now. uh, And he told me that the ruling today clarified what can and can't be compensated in relation to mental stress.
3: someone enters a residential tenancy agreement, what they're paying for is safety. They're paying for the comfort of a good home. And when that's not delivered and they suffer mental distress as a result, there can be compensation. So certainly we would think that that these rights would extend to all
0: tenants. Well, look, there's definitely going to be a lot more reaction to this big judgment in the weeks and months ahead. We appreciate your insight into all of this. Lee Robinson, ABC reporter in our Alice Springs studio. Thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks,
1: Dave. Nice chatting.
0: And on the text line, someone says, my besties in public housing and it's horrific. Her bathroom ceiling collapsed due to a leak and exposed heaps of mould. It took over a year to get the leak fixed. And the old material removed and six months later there's still no ceiling yeah uh, horrible stories coming through about people's experiences what will be the consequences of this ruling we'll, we'll no doubt hear more uh, as the months progress Hack.
4: there's been a mixed reaction to the tasmania's jack jumpers decision not to wear its indigenous round jersey
0: on triple j if you're a big basketball fan you'll know the tasmania jack jumpers and you may have heard about a bit of a controversy surrounding the team this week. The Jack Jumpers were trying to celebrate First Nations culture as part of this weekend's Indigenous rounds, but they've copped some criticism over the design of their Indigenous jersey. Our Tassie reporter April McLennan's been looking into it.
3: Working on Greta. Three on the shot clock for Milton Doyle. Turn around
4: and screaming from the sidelines of every home game. fans of the Tasmanian Jack jumpers have become pretty obsessed with the team since it joined the NBL been a dominant
3: performance from Tassie on their home.
4: but the club's basketball jersey for this weekend's indigenous round has gotten a bit of backlash.
0: I guess what it did was it, it made me frustrated because I was I was witnessing a misappropriation of culture and uh, you know of Palawa Pakana culture from the island of Luchawita.
4: Tulin Punga Pakana man Rolla Kelly Mansell is a big Jack Jumpers fan. So he was pretty upset when he saw the jersey design. Rulla says the dots used on the top don't represent traditional Tasmanian Aboriginal
0: culture. And to see it on a Guernsey of a a club (laughs) that you support and you barrack for, you can imagine that, you know, it brings up a range of emotions.
4: The Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre's campaign manager, Nala Mansell, agrees with Ruller about the dots used in the jersey's artwork. Tasmanian Aboriginal people uh, haven't used dot painting, Um, that's something that derives from um, different Aboriginal communities on the mainland, but not here in Tasmania. Um, Similar to the fact that Tasmanian Aborigines didn't have didgeridoos or boomerangs, Uh, it's not traditionally part of our culture. The group wasn't consulted on the design for the Indigenous jersey, and Nala reckons First Nations people really should have had a seat at the table. They've completely excluded the Aboriginal community from any decision-making over their selection. It's important that any non-Aboriginal institution or organisation Uh, who takes it upon themselves to make those types of selections, are heavily involved with the Aboriginal community. Ruller also thinks the team failed in their consultation process.
0: To have an internal process to select Aboriginal artwork that's going to represent your organisation and not have any Aboriginal representatives a part of that process is really problematic. And I'd ask the artist himself why, you know, he would um, choose to misappropriate, you know, his own culture, the one that he claims to be from.
4: That artist is Ruben Oates. He designed the artwork for the jersey. I think it's a great representation of the Aboriginal community here in Tasmania. Um, the ant itself representing our community, the dots and the nests representing the culture we have to protect and the culture we're, we, I guess, we're reinventing. Ruben says he's really proud of his artwork and his heritage, something that's recognised by some Aboriginal organisations, but not everyone, including the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre. I'm a proud Tasmanian Aboriginal man. Uh, I'm the seventh great-grandson of Chief Manalagena, who was the leader of Chewleway people, so I identify as a uh, Chewleway man. Ruben says the row over the artwork and his Aboriginality has been really distressing. I just think it's gone from the argument of dots, and they've lost that argument, and now it's gone on to my heritage. It's taken a really emotional toll on me, just having this fight, and uh, I'm getting these comments on social media from, from people I don't know. The Jack Jumpers' chief executive, Christine Finnegan, has actually come forward and admitted that the consultation process for the jersey could have been done way better.
2: Look, I think we all learn and grow as we can. What we are trying to do at this game, or what we are very passionate about doing, is highlighting our Tasmanian Aboriginal culture through Indigenous Round, and we are passionate about trying to do that Uh, respectfully and if if we have upset some elements of the community, we want to understand that, we want to grow from that, we want to learn from that and we want to improve that.
4: After the public outcry around the use of the artwork, the Jack Jumpers released a statement saying they're not going to wear the jersey this weekend and it will not be available for sale. They also said it was never the club's intention to cause diversion within the broader Aboriginal community and it apologises if members of the community have been affronted by the artwork
2: style. Could the process have been improved? Absolutely. And I'll certainly be working with them into the future to make sure that that's the case.
3: Hack on Triple J.
0: April McLennan with that story. If you want to learn more about it, there's a big write-up on ABC News Online. You can find it there. Still a lot of messages coming through about all of our stories, including the bushfire update, people concerned for communities. On Instagram, someone says, it's so damn sad, so many people at risk and so little to offer them except support and understanding. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.